Welcome to this special episode of the Bit of a Tangent podcast. I'm John Lucker, a data scientist with a background in computer science and genetics. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Jared, the only fifth-year med student who can apply a Fourier transform by hand. This episode focuses on blockchain technology and the Libra cryptocurrency. For this discussion, we were joined by crypto expert Thomas Tamil. Tom is a final year electrical engineering student, the founder and chairman of the AI and Crypto Society at the University of Cape Town, and the developer of mindforchange.org, a nonprofit website enabling in browser cryptocurrency mining for the purposes of effective altruism. We recorded this episode a few days after the official announcement of Libra. So our conversation represents our first impressions after reading the white papers and initial comments from the crypto community. Since then, there has been considerable backlash to Libra, and representatives are expected to appear before US Congress in a series of hearings towards the end of July 2019. One of our goals with this conversation was to provide sufficient context for a good debate about the potential pros and cons of Libra and how it might affect the future. To that end, we begin the episode by introducing key concepts in cryptography, data structures, and smart contracts. So if you have no background in these areas, or need a quick refresher, then this episode should fill in enough background for coherent debate about Libra, its implementation, and its potential impact. On the other hand, if you are already well-versed in these ideas, or work in the crypto field, then feel free to skip to the 30-minute mark for the true meat of the discussion. There, we analyze Facebook's strategy with Libra and how it will likely roll out, failure modes, runaways and societal impacts, and the possibilities for the next generation of commerce and efficient markets. As always, links to everything we mention and more can be found in the show notes. This was one of the most exciting episodes to make, so we hope it gives you food for thought. Here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. So we're going to talk about Facebook's new cryptocurrency, or Zuckbucks. <laughs> Phrases you never thought you would say. <laughs> maybe we should have expected this. That's maybe the first question to ask. Yeah, it's, it's simultaneously the most surprising and unsurprising tech move of the past few years for me. I don't know. What was, it seems... what was unsurprising? That someone did it eventually. The fact that... The fact that it took this long was, I suppose, more surprising. But it, then at the same time, it seemed to come out of nowhere from the depths of the crypto winter, so to speak. <laughs> there was there was news about it uh, a while back. And then, you know, it was, it was an undercover thing for a long while. I think mid-2017, it was undercover. Um, mm. And then, you know, this is the, the, new, the newest news about it since then. From what you're saying, it's been a few years in the works. And from what I've read and seen about this, there are a lot of people who've been working on this for a, a long time, uh, from a technical side, from a logistical side, from the financial and the PR side, you know, everything down to the graphic design, because the website is pretty slick, right? So I'm thinking, how did they actually keep this secret for as long as they did? Or are we just uh, a bit out of the loop of 
where this would have been leaked. I don't know. Mr. Zuckerberg made a statement at some point on his is like New Year's resolutions almost for Facebook. Okay. It's like number one, don't be evil again. This time for real. Number two, we're making a shit coin. <laughs> no, you've just you've just got me imagining Mark Zuckerberg as the equivalent of that person who who uh, commits to giving up smoking every year but never does. Uh, but it's giving up evil. <laughs> you know, if if Zuck would just kick that evil habit, it would be amazing. Yeah. It's, he's just a he's just a social eviler, you know. It's when he goes out to parties with all his just has one or two drinks and then he and they, <laughs> they're all standing there eviling and like he just feels left out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, some like other than other than the rumors in twenty seventeen, did did you see this coming? Is this something you were expecting from one of the tech giants? So back then, I think the first uh, inkling that I heard that it was that that was reasonable, not just beyond rumor, you know. Um, was when they uh, announced a blockchain developer and research positions on their website sometime around then. Ah, that's interesting because you have to get the talent first and the talent has to know that you're trying to acquire them. So that's, that's so, where I, I remember I mean, confirming it, you know, at least in my mind, like, oh, it's not just a rumor. You didn't, you didn't hear rumors. You were headhunted. This is what, this is what we're actually realizing. <laughs> no, it's when, it's when they posted a, a job position wanted satoshi nakamoto <laughs> yeah we should have known that they were going to do something known. yeah <laughs> so i guess what we need to get into is why is this important if it even is what about it could go very right or very wrong in each of our views and get some predictions from each of us and just tie all of this in into the, sort of the larger picture of tech and i guess along the way we'll talk about the some of the technical details of, of the actual Libra cryptocurrency. Mm. And let's go from there. Yeah, so I think the first thing to do is just to say hello to anyone who's listening to this with absolutely no context of what what we're talking about here in, in the sense that they just played the next episode and, and didn't pick this one out specifically because we're talking about Libra or Facebook or cryptocurrency. So if you're listening to this, Facebook released a cryptocurrency and it caught a lot of people by surprise and they are marketing it as the kind of thing that's going to make transactions across borders convenient and cheap and affordable and will kind of democratize financial services. But what also makes it interesting is how they've gone about implementing this aside from the technical aspect of of what is involved in, in putting this together. And that involves having an association that's that's set up where Facebook is is merely a interested party who has one vote in how this Libra cryptocurrency will be regulated going forward. And the fact that this cryptocurrency has some kind of inherent value in that they are backing it with existing assets. It seems like Facebook is very much targeting Libra as being a new kind of payment. They want people to be buying a coffee with this. They want people to be paying their rent with this. It's not something that people will purchase and then huddle in their wallet until the next uh, time it moons, right? It, it's, it's a fundamentally different kind of play to the other like ICOs and things that happened during the crypto boom. So I think it's, it's worthwhile clarifying some key ideas that relate to cryptocurrencies and relate to 
blockchain-like technologies that will be really important in this discussion going forward and that will make the societal and economic aspects of what we discuss later on much more easy to grasp for anyone who's listening. So I think a lot of people will be familiar with the term blockchain or cryptocurrency, but it's probably a buzzword for many people. So if you guys want to have your best uh, attempt at describing the basics of what a, a blockchain is and what a cryptocurrency is and how the two are interconnected at a very high level, I think that would be a useful start. It's just my luck that I have a brother who's an expert here. So as the first podcast guest, this is this is why you're here, man. So take it away. Um, as if I qualify as an expert, I'd be surprised, but uh, thank you. <laughs> Aren't you Satoshi Nakamoto? I thought you might yeah, be Satoshi. If only, if only. <laughs> and that's, that's what my lawyers require me to say anyway. <laughs> so I guess a blockchain is a kind of ledger that records a bunch of information. And like any ledger, like an accounting ledger, you can have transactions of money on it. So a, a blockchain is basically a as the word kind of says, a chain of blocks. Each block contains many transactions of money, of coins in this new currency. And the chain part is a chain of hashes. And hashes come from cryptography and are a secure method of taking some input and creating an output that you can't get the input from the output. Okay, so so, so these, these hashes are, are like a one-way type machine you can put something into them and easily get the thing out but you can't take the thing that came out and work backwards to what you put in that's it so i mean that's a fundamentally mysterious thing about the 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 nature of mathematics and the universe and the way it works but at the same time this is what enables us to do every kind of secure online transaction even in traditional banking system i mean i don't know if i want to throw us on a tangent here but if you just think about how many things in the universe obey that kind of property? Fire burning wood, that irreversibility aspect, right? Interesting. Okay. You know, transitioning from like entropy. low entropy to high entropy states. Okay. You and I got there at the same moment. Wow. Yeah, that's that's an interesting <laughs> way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, from the sort of implementation standpoint, there's these really complicated functions that will take in some information and kind of scramble it up in a certain way that is reproducible. So it's not random. If you put the same input, you get the same output every time. But the only way to get back to the input is by trying every possible input and comparing the outputs until they match. So in that sense, it is very much one way. And I think that idea is yeah. really confusing. So if that sounds confusing to you, that means you're starting to understand it. And it is <laughs> what makes all of these things possible. It's what makes if you've heard of digital signatures or public key cryptography or RSA or SHA, all of these things are, are related to, to hashing functions and hashing functions enable all of them. Awesome. So off mic, you guys were talking a little bit about how the Libra cryptocurrency is unique in the data structure that is almost implementing how transactions will be stored and validated. Yeah, so I think a key idea before Tom really digs into that would be that blockchain is the data structure. And in the case of something like Bitcoin, you happen to be putting a virtual currency 
on the blockchain. You happen to be using those blocks to store transaction records of this currency. But the data structure could be used to store virtually anything. You know, you can put medical records on the blockchain. That's just using the same data structure to have some other kind of application. Uh, so I think that's an important sort of clarifier up front. So maybe one of you can talk about how this is different from something like Bitcoin, um, both in how transactions are recorded and also in how this network of people validating it actually come to some agreement on what the current state of everyone's let's just say the word bank account is right and, and we'd usually use the word consensus for describing that situation all right the blockchain as it were is copied to all of the nodes that want it right so anytime that a new person wants to join the network they can ask whoever's nearby to give them a copy of the blockchain um, which is to say that they get a copy of essentially all of the transactions that have happened and all of the uh, associated crypt cryptography that links everything together when um, when you want to create new blocks um, but this is essentially how you keep consensus in the network. You want to verify that everyone else uh, updates with you. So if you find a new block, which is to say you complete some cryptography, you then can update the network in exchange for getting a few coins, in this case Bitcoin, um, which is the process of mining. And then you can distribute your updated version to everyone on the network. But the problem is if two people get a new block at the same time, it most likely, almost certainly, will not be the same exact block because of different transactions and different hashes. And so you have to decide which block is the true block, and that's the process of consensus. So what generally happens is you just try to distribute that as quickly as possible, and the first kind of block that gets as far in the network will dominate. And the, the, the second key to that is that the longest chain of blocks is always dominant against any other. Um, and because of the way the hash function works, it means that over time, um, all the other chains that happen will, uh, be, will fall away as um, the longest chain becomes the true chain. Okay, and so this is because each block kind of links or directs to the block before it in a, in a cryptographic way using these hash functions that we spoke about. And so you can't fake things down the line because you would have to go back and rewrite so much history and that's very computationally expensive. And so the idea of, of you mentioned um, miners and like crypto mining is the term a lot of people will be familiar with. And for something like uh, Bitcoin, when you're mining the cryptocurrency, what you're really doing is the hard work that's required to validate that uh, everything is is legitimate and and that is where the security comes from so these these one-way functions are really easy to check but they are really hard to generate in in the first place and so the, all, all this work has to be done and so there's remuneration in exchange and that's why it's called mining because you do a whole bunch of hard work to get some some reward for it but really what you're doing is helping validate that no fraud has occurred earlier on in the blockchain right exactly and also provide the the service to um prove for other people that their transactions have been paid that they've paid the person that they said they were going to pay all right awesome yeah so i think we've covered some like really useful ideas there and especially this idea of decentralization because that's one of the things that a lot of people really like about blockchain and uh, crypto technologies in general and that's something 
on which Libra is doing some interesting things, but also some potentially ominous things. And that I feel is an area that we'll definitely dig into. So I think if you could maybe dive into then why Libra is not the same as traditional style blockchains. So what is it about the Libra data structure and Libra's method of, of gaining consensus that is slightly different? I think there's just some interesting technical details there, which could be a quite a juicy thing to get into here. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the TLDR for this is it's not actually a blockchain because it's not a chain of blocks. There are no blocks. <laughs> and in addition to that, it's also not keeping track of the transactions. It's keeping track of the state of the whole network. And the transactions are inferred from the differences between the states. So if you're now thoroughly confused, Tom will elucidate. <laughs> what happens is essentially the state is a a ledger in its entirety and at each step whenever someone makes a transaction you transition from one state of the ledger to another state so there aren't blocks of transactions where each uh, block has a lot of transactions in it there's single um, updates from state to state where a single transaction occurs okay so in something like uh, bitcoin you had a blockchain and it's a chain of blocks and in each block you had a whole bunch of transactions and then those were stored in a data structure called a Merkle tree. If anyone is familiar with a tree data structure, uh, essentially you've got like some nodes at the top and they branch down into more nodes. So it kind of looks like an upside down tree. And it's a very popular data structure that's used all throughout computer science, maths, various other disciplines. And a Merkle tree is just a tree that uses hashes to all the children in each node, right? So a parent node is hashed based on the hashes of its children. If you know that the hash at the top of the Merkle tree is legitimate, you then know that every other hash is legitimate. So if you verify the top of the Merkle tree, you've verified everything. And if you don't care about what's in there, you can just chuck it away, which is one of the exactly. ways that they were keeping these, these blockchains lean. Yeah. But then how does Libra differ, right? Because it's it's also using Merkle trees to keep track of things, but those aren't inside blocks. It, it seems like instead of the Merkle trees being the way that transactions are stored and then those being stored inside chained blocks, the Merkle trees are stored inside other Merkle trees. So there is no blockchain. It's just they've taken the idea of Merkle trees and used that as the actual data structure. So it's kind of similar, and they're using the term blockchain because... That's what everyone's familiar with, but it actually isn't, as far as I can surmise, and I've heard a few other people say this as well. So it's Merkle trees all the way down then. <laughs> wow. But yes, it, all, all the way up, I suppose, because they, they evaluate upwards. So uh, <laughs> something like that. Something like that. Um, um, which, is, which is interesting. And the fact that it's state-based right. as opposed to just logging the, the transactions. Is it known yet what sort of implication that might have for the speed at which you can do transactions? I mean, is this something that people will have to play around with to get a feel for? I mean, I don't know if like, there's any good theoretical background that can, can kind of help us make informed guesses here or if the best thing will just be mm. to play around on like a, a testnet version of this and see what happens. 
Yeah, I think probably one of the big limitations that I've heard a lot of people discuss with regards to blockchain is the fact that you have this lag of how long tra transactions take to propagate through the network and be verified. So for something like uh, Bitcoin, I think it's like 10 or 15 minutes um, because you have to wait for a block to be verified before the transactions in it are verified. And that takes a whole bunch of time because they're very big blocks with lots of transactions. And so I believe that this system that Libra is proposing, because it's just Merkle trees within Merkle trees, they have the advantage of much shorter periods of time for validation to occur because you can do things at an almost transaction to transaction basis, which means they're more able to compete with more conventional services like credit card swipe transactions and you know, the, the visas and MasterCards of the world. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was reading some of their technical documents, it sounds like as a baseline, they're wanting to be able to do something like a thousand transactions a second, right? Mm. And their sort of um, benchmark is they want this to be able to occur on sort of factory grade hardware, if I can put it like that. So, I mean, they say that they expect, at least at the beginning, you'll kind of require the resources of you know, a well-provisioned data center. I mean, they 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 mm. estimated like a, a 40 meg per second internet line, a reasonable CPU. But I think they're aiming, and this, this goes back to their long-term goal of going sort of in the fully decentralized, fully permissionless version where almost anyone who can meet these hardware requirements can um, become a validator node. And to do that, they've had to ensure that, you know, they're not just saying only someone with, let's say, Google levels of computing power mm. can can do this. So they've, they've, they've designed the currency, I think, quite explicitly to be able to execute something like a thousand transactions a second yeah. on this kind of, of hardware grade. This suggests two things to me right away. The first is that this tells us that they are focused primarily on payments. Right? They specifically mention the fact that they are envisioning that they'll be able to do a thousand payments a second, which is the kind of metric that a regular old school credit card transaction company would tout. Right? So it, it's very much that they're competing for those kind of like point of sale payments or peer to peer payments that will happen on a large scale, highly frequently. And the data structure that they've gone with here with these Merkle trees very much lends itself to that level of performance. And at the same time, it also suggests that the inherent network will be quite decentralized because it's going to be accessible to pretty much anyone who has access to some kind of server hardware. So I guess what you could say is it's a pretty good sign that they've made those considerations. And I think what you bring up there is an important point. This distinction between blockchains as sort of pure payment platforms, which I think most people are familiar with. But then this more exciting area, which I know Tom knows a fair bit about, which is this idea of building applications and so-called smart contracts on top of the blockchain. I guess maybe it's worth discussing the extent to which the Libra 
currency will sort of enable this and whether this will be a big part of its future or if, as you say, it's going to just be another payment system. Yeah, so so I think I think where where Bitcoin made a nice uh, point of comparison with Libra for the basic data structure and for achieving consensus, Ethereum makes for a similarly nice comparison point when talking about virtual machines, smart contracts, and things of that nature, and putting things other than coins on this blockchain. So yeah, Tom, if you'd give us a compare and contrast on that. And- sure. Um, so I think I'll start with just saying. I guess what a smart contract is, um, it's basically a piece of code that can run on the virtual machine that exists in the blockchain, um, which is to say you can upload any code. Uh, the languages are generally Turing complete. Bitcoin doesn't have a Turing complete language, but uh, like Ethereum does. So you can upload anything that you can compute elsewhere and um, you can pay for that compute time and deal with uh, all sorts of things that the blockchain can handle, such as identities from addresses and money from inherent currencies. So yeah, you can build applications that interact with people. But certainly, I like this one quote that says, uh, the blockchain doesn't care if you're a fridge, um, <laughs> because it doesn't matter if you are a fridge, you can also interact with the blockchain. So you can kind of conceive of smart contracts where your fridge can order groceries for you if you just give it some money and every once in a while it pings the smart contract of your local grocer and it then can send you your groceries or something to that effect. And when you said you pay for the computation to be done, does this tie into the idea of gas prices and gas charges? Uh, And how does that differ from, you know, sort of miners doing work to get the cryptocurrency? Yeah, so it does exactly tie into gas um, prices. Gas, um, for those of you who don't know, are fees that you are charged whenever you want to run your code on the blockchain for a smart contract. In essence, you pay a fixed rate of gas per operation of a computer. So if you want to add two numbers together or multiply two numbers together, there's a fixed cost for that. Um, And obviously, you just sum all of those up and you get the amount that you have to pay after running your contract. Maybe it's just useful here because this is fairly abstract because, I mean, we've been describing blockchains as almost lifeless structure, mm. this this giant ledger that records transactions. Maybe it's worth just trying to explain this idea of a virtual machine and how this sort of lifeless ledger can now suddenly come alive and actually do computation, run programs. Mm. Um, yeah, so so there's kind of two separated parts of the network. There's the mining part where miners verify monetary transactions, but then there's another kind of transaction which represents a data transaction. So any smart contract takes some data as an input and puts it out as an output. And in very much the same way as you pay for a transaction, you pay for an um, execution of your smart contract. So where people have paid for a monetary transaction, you can do exactly the same thing where you just pay for compute on their on this other person's computer in the network to run your smart contract for you essentially. Okay, so so the idea of a smart contract is that it's essentially just like a piece of code and you might think of it, you know, I want to do some 
data analysis on some data set I have on my computer or whatever it might be. And I could let it run on my laptop and it would take you know, a super long time. So I now I could pay money to Amazon or Google or some cloud service provider that gives me access to a cloud-based server. And I pay them from my credit card in fiat currency, like regular, regular money to have access to this thing that then does the computational work. But now alternatively, I could go and say, okay, cool. Instead, I'm gonna pay using LibraCoin or Ethereum or something else to execute some code that I want to analyze this data. And it will happen on other computers that are connected up to this blockchain network. Right, so they, they are then going to be doing the work for me. And much like Amazon or Google was charging my credit card, they are charging my Libra wallet for the work that they're going to be doing. So it's still this compute that's happening on some actual computer somewhere, but now I'm just paying different people for it. And, and the work can be done by various different people in different places. Is that right? Yes, exactly. I think the one benefit of um, a network like Ethereum um, instead of... Amazon AWS or Google Cloud is that your code doesn't um, your code will always run no matter what happens as long as you give it the right input and you you know pay your fee um, because it's on the blockchain it can't be stopped you know they kind of call it unstoppable applications where you mm. you literally cannot stop it from happening um, you cannot stop your code from being run provided yeah. that you pay the money for to have it run um, because it's on this distributed network. If Amazon decided, no, they don't like you, or I don't know, they boycotted your country or something like that, they could prevent you from running um, your code. Um, and that ties back to this yeah. whole democratizing promise that blockchain technology and cryptocurrency seem to have, where it's like, well, you can't just come along and be the biggest kid on the block with the longest stick and threaten everyone else into doing what you want. Like people will still be able to do things without any one authority controlling everything and monopolizing. Everything we keep coming back to seems to be this idea of when you decentralize things, you democratize things and you give more people control over things. So, I mean, I think that might be as good a place to jump off into my sort of big worry with the whole Libra coin idea. So as you said, and as we've covered already, the Libra cryptocurrency isn't fully decentralized and at least for now, despite Facebook's promises, it is permissioned, right? You need some someone mm -hmm. to give you access. You can't you can't mine it, in yeah. other words. I, I can't just fire it up on my laptop and, and stop mining Libra. So for me, the real big questions about this currency come when you just imagine a few things going right for it. Facebook is obviously huge, right? Facebook owns Instagram and WhatsApp. I don't have an exact number on how many users those three companies have altogether, but I'd be surprised if it was under something like 2 billion, right? Around that number feels roughly correct, right? So for me, you only need imagine that some percentage of 2 billion people end up with access to Libra. And Judging on how slick the website is announcing the white paper, I think we can also assume that the onboarding and the purchasing and the creation of a digital wallet will probably be much easier than it has been historically for someone to, let's say, set up a Bitcoin wallet, right? So let's, that's my sort of next assumption is that a large percentage of the, this potential 2 billion 
can actually start to use the currency. Which, which ties in both to the promise and to the potential worrisome nature of Libra and, and the fact that it is originating from Facebook. Exactly, right? So the question I've been asking myself over the last few days is, in some sense, this is exactly what we want. I think for the three of us, the idea of moving further away from you know, uh, fiat currency in many ways is desirable, especially if it creates competition over the transfer fees to move money internationally or helps um, how this is, or it helps in the idealistic way that Facebook writes about when they say that it could prevent sort of extortion of um, very unskilled laborers in smaller developing countries. But let's say, so in some sense, right, this is, this idea of Libra is almost everything we could possibly want in the idea of a truly global currency that could be sent anywhere between anyone in seconds, right, for very, very small amounts of money. That's amazing if it would work. But if that worked, how many people need to make it an integral part of their lives? As in, how many people need to be relying on it for, let's say, 80% of the transactions they make in a day or for small businesses? Maybe it's something like 50% or more of all the payments they receive are in Libra. At what point is it so embedded that we can't push the undo button? Much like Facebook itself became that embedded, where once every friend you had had it, it almost was like, okay, well, I have to get Facebook now. Exactly, right? First of all, no project is guaranteed success, right? I mean, in the same way that it took us sort of 10 years after Facebook was created to see the sort of Cambridge Analytica monster and the potential to manipulate elections, or in the same way that it took us many, many years to realize how uh, Twitter and Instagram siphon your attention and cultivate outrage. It's not immediately apparent that deploying this huge global system is guaranteed to give only positive outcomes, right? The second case is the one in which Facebook or the Libra Association decide to become not malevolent, but let's just say less benevolent than they are currently portraying themselves as, right? So they've promised now to become fully decentralized and permissionless, but you know, 10 years down the line, that still hasn't happened, or they make some big moves or changes to the way the asset pool is managed. If billions of people were relying on this to be a huge part of their day-to-day -day interaction with the banking system, you almost don't get to, to jump off it, much in the same way that currently, if you don't like how your national currency is being managed, you don't exactly get a say in, in it. You don't get to say, oh, no thanks, I disagree with that um, monetary policy. I'm, I want to exchange my rands for dollars. You can do that, but at high costs, but you still can't affect the actual monetary policy. And so I think there's a bit to worry about there. Yeah, so one thing that I just keep coming back to, if this is focused solely on payments and we've we've sort of surmised that from the way facebook's been marketing this it you know it's like everyone who's listening to this now has either whatsapp facebook instagram or all three on their phone at this exact point in time um, and these services are going to be like embedded in all of those virtually overnight once they release so now okay great so you can make all these these cross-border payments low fees cool 
Okay, so if it's focused solely on payments and it's supposed to be this great thing, why is it actually a cryptocurrency, right? And moreover, is it actually a cryptocurrency? Like it is practically and technically, but it could also be that it's a minimum viable qualifier for a cryptocurrency that still behaves in the way that the powers that be are happy with. And that conspiracy theory starts making a little more sense when you start considering the fact that the people that have bought into this Libra association include the kind of people who this technology would in theory be destroying, right? You've got payments people, you've got MasterCard, PayPal, uh, PayU, Stripe, and Visa are all a part of this Libra association. And you've got a whole bunch of Facebook's big tech giant competitors, people like Uber and Spotify and Lyft and eBay getting involved as well, jumping on board with this. It feels very much like this is just a way to sell a new government with one single currency to the people of the world while it's masquerading as being this decentralized technology that will protect everyone's privacy. Yeah, that was my initial concern. In some ways, right, again, taking this situation, which is not guaranteed, but in the situation where this really goes well, and a lot of people start using it, and we can't undo it, or it's just so embedded that we really struggle. Because the Libra Association, you're not elected by votes, right? You have to pass some revenue checks, and you need to be a big, reputable company. Let's say, just extrapolate 30 years into the future, and everyone is using Libra. Well, then you've kind of elected MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, Uber, Lyft, etc., as the quote-unquote rulers of a central bank, except they're not democratically elected and they can't ever be deposed, right, under the current sort of regime, right? There's no mechanism here where I can say, hmm, I'm not crazy about what MasterCard did in the year 2027. That, That was just completely below the board. You don't get that option to say, well, therefore, I don't want them controlling the world currency, So there are concerns for me in the way in which this could stabilize into a singleton of sorts, right? Where it's so pervasive that it's just everyone gets on it in the same way that with social networks, there's kind of winner-take-all effect. And then we might end up with an unelected, undeposable governing body, which has power over our financial lives and is made up of the biggest companies in the world. You know, I mean, I'm not exactly anti-capitalism in any way, but there are some alarm bells going off in my head. Well, absolutely, because in addition to that being a pretty dystopian outcome and the fact that you can issue smart contracts to it that, uh, as Tom pointed out, will run no matter what, that means it's pretty irreversible. It means that this thing is harder than just convincing a bunch of humans to change their course of action. It, it, it's something that has an identity and it, it manifests as a thing in and of itself. And even even if the governing body, this Libra Association, decides something, I mean, at some point, the code has a mind of its own. And, and that's quite concerning, right? If you, if you look at Facebook in the past, it was essentially, you know, taking people's private information and selling it to the highest bidder. 
under the facade of being about connecting people and social interactions and things of that nature. And now it feels like they're making a new play since the Cambridge Analytica scandal, whereby they go, okay, cool, like we stuffed up, but there's this new thing. Now we're going to allow everyone to like make transactions and it's going to be great. And it's like the new kind of decentralized democratic financial system. But in reality, what they're just doing is finding a new means of having central control. And this time, the Cambridge Analytica scandal won't be just, you know, something where they get dragged in front of a bunch of hearings. It will be something that now exists in a software and hardware entity that is Turing complete and has its own internal system that allows code that was written whenever in the past to still be executed into the future. And, and it starts sounding more and more dystopian the deeper you look into it. Yeah, I mean, that is that is actually, I hadn't thought about the, the possibility for almost eternal, unstoppable code. Um, and again, this is all resting on a few key assumptions, namely that Facebook actually successfully rolls out Libra and that people actually use it. But I don't find those, to, I mean, if you gave me percentage chances of that happening, of something less than 10% even, I'd be very surprised. And I'd put the just conservatively at like something like 30%, right? You know, I mean, we're not talking one or 2% here, I don't think. So this is this is probability that this actually gets off the ground and succeeds. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So interesting, should we go for a wisdom of the crowds here? Like, okay, we've obviously got the anchoring effect, but Tom, what's your what's your probability distribution on that? Well, I was, I was thinking a little bit more along the lines of if Libra fails, then there's going to be another coin that I think will take its place almost Let, let's call mm, it google coin um which will instead take its place i think it's almost almost an inevitability that it, it, it'll be run by the by the former google plus team who have got a huge vote <laughs> to pick with facebook they're like you won the last round but you will not win this one <laughs> but yeah that's that's a that's a really good point that uh that it, it's creating a a market now and if it then collapses there will be a vacuum in its place that will suck in various other people with different objectives and goals and implementations so yeah that's a that's a very good point but yeah put a put a number to it if you feel like it uh for for libra exactly yeah like the, the odds that libra works out um i think for libra itself i'd, I'd probably stray somewhere right in the middle somewhere about 50 percent and then for for someone else given libra doesn't succeed given libra doesn't i'd say 90 percent Really, I would go the opposite direction. If Libra doesn't succeed, I mean, we we haven't we haven't bounded this either in 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 time, which is which is bad. Uh, Philip Tetlock would be very sure. disappointed in our uh, forecasting uh, configuration. But yeah, okay. So so you, so Jared, you reckon that it's it's less likely if Libra fails that someone else will succeed? I mean, I guess you could say in the long term, people will just keep trying until we get a successful version. Mm. So maybe that's what gives you the confidence. But for any given venture. You know, I, I would still adjust downwards and say, hmm, if one fails, it makes it maybe more likely that people are skeptical. And I see like one of the worst case scenarios I can imagine here is sort of this power struggle where maybe in the next year or even months, Google or Amazon or even Apple, who knows, try to make their own play and try to establish themselves as the big okay. equilibrium here. Because... So currently, Facebook has made their move. They've um, planted their flag and said, this is going to be the big global currency in, in 
uh, as many words, really. And so as I see it, Google and the rest of the tech crew have two responses. They can either sign on as um, part of this Libra association, which means they're signaling defeat and they're also adding their significant mm. tech might to the project. Or they can basically defect, right, to sort of borrow the game theory term. And they can go down the route of, no, we won't cooperate. We're going to make our own coin, even if it steals users or leads to compatibility issues or any number of things. And so there'll be like, there'll have to be exchange between the two. And maybe that could be organized. But those are kind of the two options, right? And then you get the interesting coordination problem as a result, right? Because now you've got a whole bunch of big organizations making this decision individually for themselves. You know, do I jump on board with this thing thinking that this will be big and there's no point fighting it and I can benefit from it? Or do I try and oppose it and, and dominate? Well, now you're going to have all of these people making this independent decision. And depending on which way they all sway, enough of the mass will either align behind Libra or not, right? If it crosses some critical threshold of people joining on, and becomes ubiquitous, the network effect means that it will it'll eventually just grow to touch every corner of our lives, most likely. Definitely, and I think Facebook's hoping for that. Well, exactly, right, because they've seen how strong that network effect is firsthand over the last 15 years. Um, and, and yeah, so it seems very much like that. that's their play. And we shouldn't neglect to mention the potential positive aspects of this, right? I feel like we, we have an inherent distrust and, and dislike for Facebook and that, uh, that, that biases us towards looking at the possible ways this can go wrong. And any time that you're looking at something huge and revolutionary, there's usually more ways it can go wrong than right. So I feel like that bias is often fair. But there are a lot of ways this can go right, and there are a lot of potentially amazing outcomes for that, right? If you have a, a really good, efficient, cheap digital currency that is embedded into all aspects of daily life and is, is built in a security centralized way, you suddenly get all the things that are like great about an efficient market, like a stock exchange, and you get to apply that to every aspect of life, right? So obviously the tangible goods and services that it will initially be used as a payment system for, the guy who shines your shoes at the airport or the taxi service who got you there. But then over time, it can start to quantify the value of attention or be used as a, a way of paying for, for memes or whatever it, it might be, right? You, you can suddenly have an efficient market on just about anything that people place a subjective value on because now you have a way of putting an objective value on it because people can pay for anything instantly, easily, direct, peer-to-peer. -peer. And you can pay sub-cent values as well. Well, that's the other thing, right? It's like uh, almost infinitely divisible. And so you, you can stream money instead of it being discrete quanta it will just be like a continuum of okay instead of paying for your uber when you get out of the uber and it's a single credit card transaction it's like at, when you're in the uber it's just streaming out of your libra and it's also streaming out to your insurer because the insurance rate goes up slightly when you're in a, a motor vehicle unless it's a self-driving one in which case you're streaming to the uh, ai that's driving the self-driving car and it's earning libra for driving you around safely. And now you've got data processing can, can be done with these smart contracts and virtual machines on this platform. And you can pay for it with the same currency that you use to pay for hard goods and services, the same currency that you use to stream 
like meme value back to your favorite meme lords on whatever social platform we have at the time. <laughs> like th everything suddenly becomes this very interconnected economy. And I think that could be an incredible thing, right? Because if there's one thing that humans have invented slash discovered slash stumbled upon that is actually really freaking good at regulating a system, it's an efficient market. You know, that's actually, I think you might've just really swung the tide in my head on just how much I want this to be a thing. Because often as not when I imagine that kind of micropayment dense society, I imagine it as just being the internet without an ad block and like every EA Games uh, title that asks you to do a quick micropayment for more <laughs> fuel for your car in Need for Speed, right? So the worst outcome is it becomes really annoying. So you're constantly having to click accept the terms and conditions, pay 0.2 cents here, right? But as you put it, right, if you can stream out money so you've agreed to some price or some spread of price and a duration and the duration can be monitored autonomously. So that actually decreases the cognitive burden. Then I think you've hit on an unbelievably interesting idea, which is this idea of markets everywhere. And I think, first of all, it could be useful explaining what you mean there when you, when you talk about why markets are so important at discovering the true price of something or the, the, the true value. Um, and maybe it's even worth us talking a little bit about prediction markets here. But those couple of things really coupled with the ability to embed anything with a market which would be liquid enough to be efficient, that suddenly brings to things which were previously awful and uncoordinated and inadequate to borrow Yadkowski's term. Um, and mm. yes, that was, it took us almost an hour and a half to invoke Eliezer yeah. Yadkowski in this wow, conversation. It's a personal record. But now having done that, we can just say that maybe it's possible that a lot of the places we find inadequate in today's society could be made adequate with this ability to include an efficient market in anything, just if you'll indulge my tangent here. Totally, yeah. And I think this is a tangent that we must keep brief because this could be five episodes in and of itself, which it will almost certainly be at some point in time. Um, but but con considering this auspicious occasion in which we have Tom as a guest, I will indulge you. Um, so just briefly, this idea of, of market efficiency, because efficiency is not actually a, a great term. We would be more accurate in saying a market that is well balanced or in a homeostatic or in an equilibrium state, right? As opposed to an efficient market, but that's the term we're stuck with. Um, so when you look at something like the stock exchange, if I think that something is undervalued, so I think that the price of Apple shares is undervalued because their new iPhone technology is gonna be fantastic and when they release it, everyone is gonna go and upgrade the iPhone. So now I buy a whole bunch of Apple shares and then the price goes up and then I sell those Apple shares and I, and I make a whole bunch of money. But if I'm wrong in that, if I misunderstood something and the price stays the same or goes down, then I don't make money or I lose money. Uh, conversely, I'm able to short the market, which means I'm able to essentially predict that if I, th I think this, the next uh, Apple CEO is going to be a terrible CEO and going to take the company in a direction where they remove all ports from all devices and it becomes impossible to connect anything except for another Apple device 
that somehow also needs a dongle. Anyway, imagine I see that that's the direction Apple's going and I decide, okay, cool, I don't want Apple shares. Well, I can short it, which means I can essentially borrow Apple shares from someone and promise to pay them for them later at some given rate. And then when the price goes down later, I, I pay the later rate. Um, and so this, this formality of being able to short things in a market allows me to profit from things doing badly as well. So in both directions, whether I have information that something will do well or badly, where I think it's under or overvalued in a market, I can act on that in a way that I can make a profit and, and that gives me value, right? And now you've got a whole bunch of people trying to do this, a whole bunch of really clever people with like PhDs and huge supercomputers and lots of investment and high-speed undersea cables. And what you get is all the information that all these people know is being thrown at this problem of trying to determine if something's under or overvalued and by how much and how much risk they're willing to tolerate on that. And as a result, you get a price that quite accurately represents the relative value of an asset. In this case, the, the value of a company, right? So when we talk about an efficient market, that's what we're talking about. But the idea of inadequacy comes from in places where you can't have an efficient market and you have a whole bunch of other incentives acting, you can end up having scenarios where some outcome that nobody wants ends up being the status quo. But because you have no way to use information to sort of bet against that thing, you can't actually change the outcome. But I think the idea of efficient market is, is what is really key here. And the idea that that is essentially only really found in the stock markets, but the fact that a currency that is truly global and really efficient and almost infinitely divisible can allow everything to become an efficient market in the true utopian vision of it is the sort of counterfactual to the way we think this is more likely to go, which is a, a more dystopian outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like a really fascinating outlook. And I think if the currency went well, it could actually help solve things as unrelated as the fact that when it comes to carbon emissions, no one has to pay. And so it's always in your incentive to demand for stricter regulation for your competitors but to try and cheat the system because it's very difficult to measure and price how much carbon you're emitting. But you can imagine just, you know, sensors fitted to your car and a smart contract that streams money out of your account for every unit that your car uh, expends of, of carbon dioxide. So again, it's this idea of, of maybe generating markets where they otherwise wouldn't be or at least in that case just being able to price an externality yeah and if i were to imagine sort of a utopian vision for something like this not necessarily libra but a system of that kind uh, you would then be able to introduce sort of personalized ai each person would then have their own ai that is intimately acquainted with their personal information and its sole focus is to try and optimize and enhance the quality of their life. And so one thing that is super important that would be in charge of would be managing this cryptocurrency. So when you start moving away from the micro transactions for things and it becomes more like the streamable flow of currency, well now essentially you've just got like a rates of flow in and out that are constantly changing. So one of the tasks of this AI would be to sort of manage those in and out flow rates for you and make recommendations as to like, hey, you should probably go and put in some hours of like work this week 
so that you can stream in a whole bunch of stored up value so that you can do something in the future or you're exposing yourself to, to risk here by if you have an accident or something you won't be able to afford the increased premiums on something so if you want to make sure that you have five years of full medical care provision you need to do like this much work for this amount of time and so you can constantly be managing the in and out flow which allows people to be much more flexible in the kinds of work that they do and will be essential in an economy where automation becomes more ubiquitous so i mean that's the ideal utopian vision of this that i see as being the contrast to the idea of a blockchain run amok where it's just executing smart contracts that no one wants anymore that are doing horrible things and it's out of control and no one has access to it except a few companies who are all locked into this through perverse incentives that they engineered for themselves. So, <laughs> Sure, yeah, I think, I think that's a very exciting possibility, that, that kind of uh, thought that you posit of an AI looking after you um, and being able to stream value for you um and and really managing that that whole aspect of your life very conveniently i think that would be you know spectacular in its in its own sense i think that wechat is probably more comparable to what libra might be able to do something like wechat which in china is used as the de facto standard for payments for anything from buying your coffee to your groceries to your flight tickets to it's used ubiquitously around everywhere. Um, and I think that that is probably more comparable to what Libra might be able to do um, in terms of kind of convenience and at the same time, uh, dystopic reality um, because of its comparable size of comparable market size. Right? So, I mean, China has well over a billion people and this proposed network of um, Facebook and uh, Instagram and WhatsApp has probably more than 2 billion. Um, so that kind of scale certainly does have cause for concern, I guess, in terms of, I guess, abuse from its uh, owners. Um, but yeah, I'd like to think about, maybe, maybe see what you guys think about um, the comparison with the... Uh, standard app of like WeChat compared to a cryptocurrency where decentralization also has a role in all of these potential future applications. Yeah, so it's this idea of like, why is this even a cryptocurrency? Like there's, there's ways you could have cheap cross-border global payments without having a cryptocurrency. Um, and I think it was uh, Naval Ravikant who was very critical of Libra on, on this ground. It's like, this doesn't need to be a cryptocurrency, which is an, an interesting thought. It's like, it, it almost makes you go, okay, so is it is it that first idea of it's, it's masquerading behind this idea of a cryptocurrency because it's ominous in the sense either that it's Facebook being malicious here or they're just being negligent of the potential downsides or is it that they actually want to pivot from just doing payments into a proper decentralized cryptocurrency with all the perks that that offers in the future? There's, there's definitely partially obscured information here. And is it partially obscured because we don't like what the obscured thing is and it involves you know, a handful of companies controlling the world financial system? Or is it partially obscured because that makes this thing easier to market and easier to roll out and easier to get towards the final end vision from a practical standpoint of product development. 
And when you start looking at who's involved in these things, because these people obviously sit down and have much higher level chats than the average person who might be using these systems when it rolls out, right? Like you don't sit down with Visa and just go, you don't just show them your promo ad that you put up on the internet, right? You you sit down and have these kinds of conversations about the game theory and the pros and cons and the trade-offs and the future intentions of a system. And the people who've signed on and the things that that symbolizes may give us some clues as to which of those two or maybe some third outcome it is, right? Yeah, I mean, an important point to mention on this is as far as Facebook have made clear as of right now, they've kind of said that they will separate the data. So they're going to keep your social media data, your Facebook profile, your Instagram profile, your WhatsApp profile, they're going to keep that data, which they use to sell you ads, separate from the transaction data, the spending data. And they will allow users to, first of all, use the Libra currency without one of these three accounts, right? And also for individuals to have separate accounts. Okay. So in some sense, that's a really good sign. I mean, it would be, I think, really worrying if Facebook not only had this huge repository of your personal data, but then could also add to that your financial history. But even with that separation, you know, I mean, if they're going to build the kind of functionality that starts to approximate WeChat, right, where within a sort of text message chat or rather instant messaging, I can send currency or interact with a bot or maybe a smart contract in this sense some of those are the more interesting applications right but with that involves a very close tie-in with the facebook whatsapp instagram triumvirate and so it's it's not clear that we'll get that kind of functionality without then having to either agree to some terms and conditions or just unknowingly giving up some metadata or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's a weird one, right? Because what Facebook seemed to have done with, with Libra is substitute some of the decentralized nature of a cryptocurrency for some decentralizing types of regulation in a more conventional sense, right? So they, they, they instead of making it a permissionless system, they make it a permission system. So they're reducing the decentralized nature nature there but then instead of it just being run by facebook it's now like run by a whole uh coalition of of various different companies that they only have one vote in and they're also keeping the company that does libra which they call calibra i think separate from the facebook company that does the social media and advertising and things like that and you know they, they have good justifications that they've made public for this but Facebook's always a weird one, right? I mean, it's like it's a company that didn't have a business model for long into its original creation. And you have the same kind of thing with WhatsApp. And, and just everything about it is, is mysterious. And, and then I kind of put myself in the shoes of someone who's at Facebook or like Mark Zuckerberg now. He's going, okay, what do we, what do, we do now? Like social media is kind of dying for various different reasons. And, and we've, we've, you know, kind of dragged our names through the mud by kind of destroying Western democracy to some extent. Like, what do you do from here? Like, how do you, like, where do you, where do you pivot to? And given that, like, then, then there's a good reason to not think this is 
malicious or that they've got something sinister that they're hiding behind behind all of this. Uh, and, and then you kind of go like, okay, cool. Well, this is like their new play. Like they're they're now just leveraging the the market share that they have to do some big thing. In the same way that Google just made like a shit ton of money selling ads through search and then just pivoted into a whole bunch of different services that you like something like Google Street View, for instance, like that, that that's not something you could start as a company initially, but as an add on to Google's suite of things, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Right, they essentially started, they, they built an AI just very slowly by selling ads. <laughs> um, their goal for the project as a whole, um, whether nefarious or other, I wouldn't be exactly sure what it might be, but the point would be that you want to gain control of that whole market. Um, so that, that I think they're playing almost the long game, if you will, of once they have potentially a market size of, um, of let's say 2 billion people on such a platform, you have such great power of such like huge access to people and data and money. And like, it's so big, it's bigger than most countries, even probably many countries combined that what you do thereafter and how quickly you can make a profit is probably like the least of your worries compared to uh, what you can potentially do there. So I think it's almost like the Uber play of uh, screw it. We must just throw as much money at this as possible so that we come out on top. We have to be out on top. It doesn't really matter how we get there. As long as we get there, um, then, you know, okay, cool. The long-term plans of let's have self-driving cars and all these cool things can come to fruition. We can make lots of money, but in that process, it doesn't matter too much. Which, which is which is kind of what Facebook and all the companies it's bought out have done all along. Just get big and then figure it out later. And I don't know if that reassures me or makes me more terrified. <laughs> Move fast and break economies. Yeah, pretty much. And democracy <laughs> and everything that people care about or break the, the back of the, break the, break the wheel, right? Um, <laughs> but is, is uh, just blindly jumping into the void worse than having malicious intentions <laughs> like are there are there far more failure modes than success modes for this and are the failure modes like sufficiently bad that this is worth pausing to think about and regulate um and and clearly a lot of governments think so although they think that about a lot of things that don't seem so wise or prescient so you know maybe it's just a the, st the standard reflex this does bring us to the point of um how governments might try to regulate this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, lots of people have been speaking about the need to regulate cryptocurrencies for a while now, partially because there was a lot of talk initially of them being used for nefarious purposes and also because you want things to be stable and regulation is one way that uh, you bring stability to something which makes it much more widely adoptable. And also, I just think like a lot of people were talking about it and there's a lot of money going into it and so government's natural reaction is to panic and have hearings so yeah there's been a lot of talk about this for a while um, and then I've I've read that there has been government backlash but I haven't like seen the backlash itself I do remember there was at least one country and I, I forget which country exactly but at least one country did ban the currency outright um, which kind okay. of seems strange considering that's that it's only a test net um, other yeah. than that, you know, there is the uh, KYC checks as you create your profile. So you have to upload a government uh, identification, 
which you know adding that that to my kind of facebook profile I feel like you can't separate that much yeah. almost it doesn't feel too good um yeah i suppose it's, it's worth pointing out that yes it might be separate from your facebook data right but there's nowhere have they said we're not going to do all the usual machine learning and mm. sort of algorithmic manipulation and inference on your transaction data. Yes, it'll be separate from our Facebook data uh, and there'll be separate companies, but you know, that's just, that's another big conglomerate of data. And I mean, could swiftly become the biggest conglomerate of data. Yeah. And, and crucially your account on Libra is not anonymous. It's pseudonymous, right? It's not linked to your identity in the real world but it's still an identity that exists and you can track the transactions for a certain identity or a certain account. So I might not know who that account corresponds to. It's just some number, some address, but I can see everything that account's been doing. And it seems to me like, yeah, you can have as many accounts as you want, sure. But in reality, people are going to probably have one or two. And so as we know from like instances of medical records, it's pretty trivial from a few powerful data points to identify someone uniquely, uh, especially when you have large volumes of data, especially, and like this is going to be public, right? So it's not just Facebook doing this. Anyone with access is going to be able to do this. Yeah. So yeah, the, the pseudonymy is kind of strange in that it's only pseudonymous to most people in that like Jared couldn't look at my transactions and surmise easily perhaps that it was me. Obviously, as you say, you could get there with a couple of data points and kind of knowing a few things. Maybe I bought something yesterday for this price and you could make a reasonable guess, you know. Um, but the, the uh, validators, the node validators, they'll know everything. So all of those people, they will have your KYC checks and um, in in a couple of their announcing posts, they say that because governments were concerned and they wanted to kind of portray that openness, they m noted it that um, they were open to audits, they were open to kind of government cooperation, um, and they were also open to providing um, information to governments given the request. So I, I suppose that I can't remember the exact wording, but I would suppose that it was it would be a, a subpoena. Um, or something to that effect where, you know, you can't uh, refuse it, essentially. But the thing is that they have the information to give. So if someone asks you for that, then um, you can give it. So that the, that kind of distinction between something like Bitcoin, where it's also pseudonymous in that I could surmise that Jared bought something yesterday, but no one has my KYC check on Bitcoin, right? Uh, no one can give away my exact kind of Bitcoin info unless they were the gateway where I registered or something like that. It's almost easier to obtain than if it were just sitting on some server somewhere because people have a real desire to obtain it and the Libra Association has the desire to act legally and legitimately and uh, sort of comply with all the regulations. So it seems like, yeah, when you when you bring that point up, it kind of like this whole thing looks incredibly ominous again. And, and maybe not by design, but then just by consequence, right? Okay, well, now the, the NSA is just going to essentially be tracking every transaction even more efficiently than they, than they did before. And you're going to be using this for more than you used regular currencies for. Devastating for anyone who cares about privacy and decentralized control. I think uh, maybe one funny note um, was that for the, for the Bitcoin purists, the ones who prioritize this decentralization and um, near anonymity 
amongst these networks. I looked at the, the GitHub repo, the, the code for Libra, I think the day it came out, mm. um, and <laughs> someone made a pull request, uh, that is a change to the code um, on the repo that deleted the entire repository and replaced it with Bitcoin. <laughs> 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 and then that's oh, and the, the pull request title is critical vulnerability <laughs> <laughs> validators can generate new coins um, at any time um, there's not anonymity and a few other like points exactly like that <laughs> and then when you actually check the files changed it deletes the whole thing and the, replaces they deleted the entire thing it was you know because bitcoin's quite large it's like 400,000 lines of code or something like that and it's like minus 200,000 lines of libra plus 400,000 lines <laughs> and then and, and that that whole thread was something like a hundred comments long but, so that was a bit of a yeah. long one yeah that's, that's, that's superb of all the notes to leave on i i enjoyed yeah. that a good meme <laughs> <laughs> yeah well thanks that's been a really good uh, chat gentlemen tom thanks for joining us and uh chiming in with your with your expertise on this uh topic and for uh, yeah, bringing some, some extra perspectives to the conversation this evening. Much appreciated. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks to both of you. It's been, uh, as always, good with you, Mr. Truda. And Tom, it was great to have you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at PodTangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. That's podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who may enjoy them, and to give us a rating or review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to, and all the platforms that pull content from them will too. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.